0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British Boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at british-boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, and if you use the code PARPOLBRO15 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 15% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pajama, and honestly, I I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to british boxescom because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Hello, and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is always for hope over division, and has regularly got in trouble for it when splitting a restaurant bill. I'm Tina and but this week as health secretary and hey, want to feel old? This is what Stewie from Family Guy looks like now. Sajid Javid declares that opening up the country will make us healthier. I feel someone should really check if he's got a job on the side doing PR for COVID. If this was a sci-fi film we were living in, there'd be a 100% chance it'd be Javid letting everyone know that actually having the brain-eating aliens eat your brain is how you achieve true mental well-being, or letting the planet be blown up is the real path to stress-free living. For the NHS's 73rd birthday, the Queen, you know, like if Quality Street did a deflated balloon one, she awarded it the George Cross for Acts of the Greatest Heroism in Circumstances of Extreme Danger. It's only one George Cross medal, mind, uh, to be split between 1.3 million NHS staff, so there's a high chance that, like with everything else, the government will decide the only way to make up the shortfall is to hire private companies to leap in and add extra medals at extortionate cost. It's very likely, of course, the contract for those extra medals will be handed to the friend of whichever MP allocated it and that company and person will never have seen a medal before and if they do even ever arrive they'll be made of something so unhygienic it's not allowed anywhere near a hospital. I suppose we should be grateful that at 73 the NHS is still working though I suppose that does fit with conservative ideology but handing the service a medal for surviving conditions that it wouldn't have had to deal with if there hadn't been a decade of austerity and a need to fit in extra time for craftwork lessons on how to make bin bags into PPE feels a tad galling. It reminds me of computer games that are unnecessarily hard, but at the end you just get a slightly longer credit sequence with music that's nothing less than irritating before an invitation to have another go but on an even harder setting. The George Cross is, of course, yet another gesture from the Prime Minister and whoopee-cushion violently inserted into a chicken Kiev, Boris Johnson. You know, the guy who doesn't do gestures. In fact, he doesn't do them so much that on Friday he stood on a giant England flag outside of Number 10 Downing Street ahead of the football, which was supposedly in support of the game, but instead looked like he was showing everyone how his idiocy has trampled on the country. Sadly for us, no air ambulances got confused and tried to land on him, which is a shame. While it is hard to imagine what could be worse than Boris Johnson on a large flag, like X marx the Twat, the George Cross to the NHS is, I think, more insulting, because it's been awarded on the same day as the announcements for COVID restriction lifting. As though to say, here you go health service, just to prove you really are wanted, we're giving you some extra work. The government are returning to the same old tune of we have to learn to live with this virus, a phrase that they no doubt enjoy because it echoes how many feel about the Conservative government too. People die unnecessarily, those with disabilities are unfairly discriminated against as are those in poverty, and yet the bastards keep sticking around so we've all begrudgingly carried on because we don't have a choice. At least Covid isn't giving jobs to its friends and passing off certain areas of infection to bird flu or Ebola in return for donations. Hours after the policing bill that will take away people's rights to protest was debated in Parliament, Johnson announced that he didn't want the government to tell people what to do and was scrapping most restrictions on July 19th. Yes, Britain is now the worst sort of nanny state, an uncaring one who'd let you put your fingers in the plug socket because hey, you have to learn and it's up to you, but also won't let you cry about it when you do because they're too busy kissing their boyfriend that shouldn't be in your house. The Prime Minister said that we have to ask ourselves, if we didn't do this now, then we would risk opening things up in the autumn when the virus has an advantage. Whereas, of course, you know, now we can give it a warm-up work-in-progress tour so it's really got its game face on come October. If not now, then when, said Johnson. Uh, I dunno, maybe when everyone's had a second jab? Maybe not when our infection rate is much higher than the US, India, France, Germany or Canada, but then I suppose we do like to be world-beating, don't we? And I suppose letting the virus run rampant and invading people is very British colonialism too. But no, according to Johnson, it's now or never, which isn't really how this works, but I suppose if you are a child, another few weeks can seem like a lifetime. I get the feeling the Prime Minister asks his advisors every single day if it's his birthday again yet. Yeah. The one-metre social distancing rule will be scrapped, which is great news for all government ministers who can now grope their aides with impunity. And wearing face masks indoors will now be voluntary because, as we know, one thing that Brits are really good at is just doing stuff out of concern for others' benefit without having to be told to. Well, except for, you know, when, uh, just off the top of my head, littering, drinking, shouting, driving, celebrating, walking or voting. It will now mean that we have a far more lax attitude to coronavirus than celebrities do when taking part in televised singing competitions. Standing next to the King Idiot at his press conference, Chief Medical Officer and Moon Baby, Chris Whitty, expressed a lot more caution as he said we are in an increasing epidemic and need to act accordingly to reduce transmission. Which is great, except most of England drinks heavily and has just been told from July the 19th they can go out and lick things if they fancy and only lose a boring face is wear masks and don't want to kill people or something. Of course, thanks to the NHS's vaccination programme, hospitalizations and deaths from COVID aren't as dire as they could be. But it does feel like rather than let the vaccines do their job, Johnson & pals want it to be as effective as they are and give up before it's finished. It's like they just got bored and decide that they're done with it now. It's not dissimilar to Brexit, I suppose, where no doubt they think they've just got COVID done, and in a year's time, when the rest of the world has placed a glass bubble over the entire UK, a wrapped biohazard tape around it, the Prime Minister will probably blame the virus for not playing fair. The overwhelming message from scientists, you know, the ones that the government were following, but then they got distracted by something shiny, and when they turned around, the science wasn't there anymore, and oh dear, we're on a different path. Those ones, those scientists, have said that the loosening of restrictions will create variant factories. Perhaps that's why the new health secretary is so keen to scrap restrictions, as in his mind it might create a brand new British industrial sector, you know, to replace the steel industry that Javid helped bugger up as business secretary. It is odd that still after the past 16 months of the pandemic, that Sajid Javid wrote in his article in Top Shitrag the Mail on Sunday that Covid is like the flu, when it's pretty clear now that it's not really, is it? I mean, currently the coronavirus has killed way more people than flu does, is more transmissible and works all year round compared to lazy flu only popping in at winter. If anything, you'd think the Tories would be keen to note the distinction on account of how Covid fits its perfect idea of a hard worker that really others should try to emulate. And in this sort of meritocracy, all its hard work is really paying off. You don't see Covid taking time off work for weddings, sports events or even national holidays, despite what the government insists. You could question why we should trust any information from a health secretary whose expertise is in being a former banker, but actually the two jobs are very similar in that neither require giving a single shit about the NHS. Luckily, even if the ending of restrictions won't fit in with COVID's timetable, they do exactly match up with the ending of furlough, and as we all know, the virus is definitely going to stop when it sees people have incentives to work again. London Underground have already announced that COVID-related absences from work will be a disciplinary item, but on the plus side it means every tube trip Londoners take could have a bonus extra stop of A&E. Similarly, the restrictions will end just as schools in England close for the summer, so why would COVID bother infecting any kids when they won't be able to cause their entire class to self-isolate like 330,000 pupils were last week? I mean, what's even the point? It has been reported that some students have worked out how to hack the lateral flow test by pouring orange juice onto it, and I say, do you know what, fair play, as it's probably saving their teeth from all the sugary liquids that are going on that instead of their mouth, and we do want them to be healthy, Right. The double jabs will be a liberator, said Johnson, but you know, one of those liberators who looks around at those imprisoned kids and says, nope, not you, you'll have to stay here. The German Chancellor and leader of the Mushroom Kingdom, Angela Merkel, visited the UK on her final official trip in the job. That's because she's leaving it, not because she thought our high Covid rates might mean it's a cheaper way to do euthanasia rather than head to Switzerland. In fact, she probably chose Britain because there's no way to enjoy retirement, quite like looking back on the last thing you did that you really hated and think, oh, it's really good that I never have to do that again. During her visit, Merkel was asked if Brits who've had two jabs would be able to travel to Germany, and she said they should be able to in the foreseeable future, which I think means she's going to wait until she no longer has to deal with it and can watch her successor fall apart on TV instead as all the major German cities collapse under the newest English variant. The rest of Merkel's trip included chat about post-Brexit negotiations, which again, she won't have to deal with soon, so probably just nodded and said yes a lot while dreaming of how nice it's going to be never having to talk to our wittering idiot Prime Minister ever again. One of the big changes in the past week is that the EU have given an extension to the sale of chilled meats from Britain to Northern Ireland, something that the government say they've been consistently clear that there should be no barriers of movement to. So they must be really livid that whoever was in government last December, when they signed a Northern Ireland protocol that specifically said there would be barriers of movement to chilled meats, and then kept it up on the government website for all to see. Just awful. Who would do that? There will now be three more months of sausage parties for all, as well as changes for things like farm animals to not need several changes of ear tags between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, which puts a lot less pressure on sheep and cows working out what outfit to wear that will work with all of them. After September the 30th, though, the UK government has to have a permanent solution or all that chilled meat will just be banned again. So what that means is that come autumn, undercooked square sausage Lord David Frost will no doubt make some statements about the EU being anti-sausage and blame them for him having spent three months doing absolutely nothing but sitting on a lily pad catching flies. While sausage movement has been extended, the time period for EU citizens to apply for settled status hasn't and has now ended, but that is because those in charge of the rules find it much easier to sympathise with ground dead meat packed into skin rather than actual people. We can only hope that all of this, Brexit, Covid, is not a repeat of what we've seen before as the very worst thing about repeats of something you don't like is that you know it doesn't get any better at the end. One repeat that happened last week that wasn't so bad, though, was Labour winning the Batley and Spend by-election, despite polling second throughout the campaign. Though, to be fair, we should have known it was coming, as their candidate's surname was Leadbeater. It's actually pronounced Leadbetter, but it doesn't really work. New MP Kim Leadbeater, who always looks like she's about to present a BBC show about art, won by just 323 votes after a really nasty election lead-up where Labour activists had abuse shouted at them and eggs thrown, and not just from their colleagues at Party HQ, like usually happens. Leadbeater is the sister of former Batley and Spen MP Joe Cox, who was murdered by a far-right activist in 2016. So it's particularly grim to chuck that kind of nasty abuse at her. But she still won, despite all predictions that the Conservatives would take the seat and distress from Workers Party leader and Penfold's fallen off the wagon again, George Galloway, who came third and says he'll now legally contest the votes, which will likely just mean he'll spend a lot of money finding out that he's still lost. It is very funny that perpetual political sub-villain Galloway is the leader of the Workers Party, yet never seems to be able to get a job where he runs. Labour were of course ecstatic and leader and Sturflow STF1 three-speed oscillating tower fan Keir Starmer announced Labour's coming home, which is odd as actually Batley and Spen was already a Labour constituency and this time their vote was down by 7.4%. So actually they were already home and they'd lost their keys and had to break a window to get back in. Deputy leader and Julia on Sesame Street, Angela Rayner, was rumoured to be considering a leadership challenge against Starmer had they lost and may still be backed by the left of the party to do so, which I think now means about four MPs and probably isn't enough. The one in an old British spy film that always turns out to be working for the enemy and former Secretary of State Peter Mandelson blamed the left of the party, as he always does, for them not gaining a bigger win and warned Angela Rayner that they were not her friends. But I'm not sure she should really take his advice when Mandelson's friends have included Russian oligarchs and elite pedo Jeffrey Epstein. All indications are that Kim Leadbeater won because she is known as local and understanding of local issues and that her campaign on the ground was enough to swing Lib Dem and Green voters to go Labour. However, for Starmer, it's actually, he reckons, because Labour stuck to its core values and is rooted in communities, which must be why he's disbanded the Labour Community Organising Unit in favour of focus groups who tell him to kiss flags and come up with mind-blowing exciting incentives like his new one to buy British. Brilliant care. turning to the one thing we'll have to do as Brexit goes full-fledged and only gives us the choice between our own produce, which has no one to pick it, or some ship repair parts from the Faroe Islands to nibble on. Shadow Chancellor and woman who speaks to everyone like they're a child that's disappointed her by not buying organic apples, Rachel Reeves, said they would give more contracts to British businesses. Great, I mean that is what you should do, but is that really... The best you can come up with? Where are you getting your inspiration from? Farmers markets and supermarket campaigns from 10 years ago? Is the next big policy going to be eat your five a day or keep calm and carry on? But then maybe that is best when appealing to only their dream voters who are people that still wish it was 2006. The England football team's big wins in the Euros this week have caused many cringeworthy reactions from politicians, not least Home Secretary and human thigh pinch, Priti Patel, who tweeted, What a performance, what a team, it's coming home. Which is not only an odd statement for someone who you think would be very upset at the idea of more things coming to Britain, but also, just weeks before, she'd insisted fans have the right to boo England for taking the knee, and probably would have deported half the players' grandparents if she'd been in her job several decades ago. Aside from his big flag moment, Johnson tweeted earlier in the week during England's match against Germany, Come on, England! which must make a difference from him usually getting it on an aid or some furniture. There were also several pictures of him celebrating the goals in different areas of number 10, first sitting on the table next to his wife, then in a garden under a marquee. It largely looked like they just had to put TVs in every room and area, so when he wanders around like a toddler eating things off the floor, they could still get a photo when a goal happened. In between all his token football gestures, which of course he doesn't do, the Prime Minister made a statement for the end of Pride Month too, or at least we think it was, but he did say this is a country where you can be who you want to be and love whomsoever you want to love, which does also sound like he's boasting about his own privileged cheating life. In other news, Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty was bothered by some lads in a park who filmed themselves grabbing him and shouting his name a lot, which didn't seem so much an anti-vaxxers protest, but more the sort of thing that only happens in Britain because people are still very overexcited that they've seen someone is from the telly and they don't have the intelligence to realise that they exist in real life too, and that can happen. The two men were estate agents from Essex, which makes sense as they'd have absolutely no idea of how much distance personal space should be and would assume that being that close to Whitty was still room enough to swing a cat. Johnson referred to the men as thugs, which one of them responded to by saying he was very sad as actually he'd voted for Johnson as Prime Minister. Of course he had, and you'd think the PM would appraise them for being so damn British in the exact side of the culture war he wants to be on. Johnson's probably just upset they didn't also rugby tackle Chris before going off and trashing a restaurant and that's why they'll never be Prime Minister. The elections bill was presented to Parliament this week, which contains provisions for voter ID. Man made entirely of belly button fluff and former Brexit Secretary David Davis warned that the bill will potentially disenfranchise thousands of people. I mean, it's weird to say that he's not wrong for once and has actually made a good point, but I guess he does know a lot about making people think there's no point anymore just by his very political existence. The name of the bill has changed from election integrity bill to just elections bill, which suggests that even the government are aware that it has zero integrity anymore. Face made of eggs, Michael Gove is splitting from his wife, a woman who could type a message only in emojis and it still managed to be hate speech, Sarah Vine, which is a shame as they were truly vile for each other and by them being together it saved someone else having to. Apparently, after 20 years of marriage they have drifted apart, which will happen if you are human Jetsam, and they have asked for privacy in the matter, which means everyone should respect it as much as Sarah Vine has done with many other public figures' personal issues and just write about it relentlessly while being as mean and as horrible as possible. Still, it is far funnier now to realise that Gove has been given the job of stopping the union from breaking up. It's been discovered that Foreign Secretary and what if someone stretched skin over Skeletor, Dominic Raab, has had his private mobile number readily available online for 11 years for anyone to see, much like it was discovered that the Prime Minister had too. And yet, still absolutely no one calls Dominic Raab. I bet he's even written it on toilet walls as well and still had no luck. Speaking of phones, Education Secretary and mewling lama Gavin Williamson wants schools to ban all mobiles. I guess he's worried that kids might use them to leak national security secrets just like he did. And lastly, man who will one day definitely run a second-hand bookshop, Jonathan Bartley, is standing down as co-leader of the Green Party after five years. I do hope they find a way to recycle him or at least dispose of him in an eco-friendly way. Greetings, Parpol Brods. Uh, I hope you are having a good to at least reasonable week. Um, I've just been told to self-isolate by my NHS app, but only for two days, uh, which is great, as it means if I have had COVID and been infectious, I only had eight days to run around giving it to everyone and can have a bit of a breather, a bit of a rest after all that hard COVID-spreading work that Sajid Javid would be proud of. Um, I don't actually have anywhere to go till Wednesday anyway, but I did get notification while out and I still had to pick up my agent from nursery today. So that sort of poses a problem doesn't it? Did I, was I meant to just leave her there till Wednesday? Uh, if so, would I have had to pay extra for that? Um, before any of you are filled with concern, I've lateral flow tested all week, you know, uh, just for the japes so making myself wretch and sneeze like a morning detox. Clear yourself out. And I'm pretty damn sure uh, that I'm not filled with COVID. Um, so by the time you've heard this, I won't have left my daughter sorry agent at her nursery for two days even though they've got rabbits there now and she'd probably much prefer to hang out with them than me she'd really love staying there she stayed at her grandparents for a whole night this weekend and I know everyone ridiculous is calling July 19th Freedom Day honestly though it's going to be very hard to be uh, Saturday just gone where I got to spend some time sitting very still in the quiet on our sofa in my pants and then go out for drinks with friends and just talk to adults there's true freedom Right there. God, I've forgotten how good it is talking to adults as well. I mean, as an example, this evening, uh, but just before I recorded this, um a daughter cut her finger at her grandparents and she's got to have a plaster on it. And we were telling her that new skin will grow under the old skin and that's why it sort of scabs up and gets sore. And she had a big cry about how she wanted her old skin to come back. She doesn't want new skin. She wants her old skin. And I have absolutely no idea how to respond to that. Absolutely I was asking what she might do with her old skin, if we, we she keep it in a jar, put it on the wall. Didn't have any answers. I, I don't know how you console a child that their old skin from their finger has gone. Oh, God. I spoke to real people the other day. It was glorious. Anyway, um, how are you feeling about restrictions lifting? Um... Restrictions. I don't know what happened there. Um, I am very much in the mindset that it is a really stupid idea, feel a bit worried about it. But also, I want the government to go ahead with it and then have to backtrack on it horribly and look like idiots, even though that would mean I lose a ton of work again and will be supremely broken. I'll complain about it every day. That's still sort of what I want. I mean, really, obviously, it'd be nice to just want a sensible approach, but we're far beyond that, so I may as well hope for some sort of hilarious karmic retribution. Um, I'm definitely going to... Keep wearing a mask uh, long past it being necessary, uh, but that is largely to stop you all from finding out my true identity so I can keep doing all my vigilante antics that I get up to um, at night time. Obviously, I've been, yeah, uh, not I'll, I'll go out after the podcast is done. Uh, big shout outs this week to Nigel who joined the Patreon and also to Rob who sidelined all possible donation stations by sending something directly to my PayPal, which is very acceptable. Thank you, Rob. Um, but also, no, I'm not putting my email on here uh, as I can't bear the disappointment I'll get when absolutely no one. Knew uses it not even for scams so um please do the other ones I mean if you fancy sponsoring the show with the mere price of a pint but you know in a reasonably priced place um, or you know I guess the price of a tea again not a fancy one that tastes of biscuits or something or malt or whatever it is then just do you can do that too by joining the patreon.com forward slash parpole bro um, I've changed all the pictures for the different Patreon donation packages um, that's it I haven't, you will still get absolutely no extras but it'll be nice to look at for like two minutes so um, so that sort of anti-marketing that I'm sure is going to make you all swarm there and donate away uh, you can also do the ko-fi.com uh, forward slash Powerball Bro Acast supporter page, or just find other imaginative ways to send me cash, and no via Pigeon. But I'm hoping to sort of streamline it all patreon So, well, basically, I don't have to spend so long listing all the things. It's sheer laziness and little all else, but preferably, um, if you do fancy donating, please head to the Patreon. Um one other thing this week uh, is a listener who I won't name has let me know about a brother and a sister from El Salvador that um, they were putting up and they've been detained by the Home Office because the Home Office has lost their paperwork you didn't see the inverted commas I did with my fingers but I did do them um and basically, their, their solicitor has proof that the Home Office did receive it, but the Home Office say they've lost it, and so have sent them both to uh, the very grim Yarl's Wood, and they're being prepared for deportation, which is going to put their lives in danger. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, another very, very heartbreaking example of the Home Office being truly evil bastards and ruining the lives of really lovely people. Um, which is horrible uh, it's just such a horrible thing to hear yet another case of um, there is a petition to stop their deportation I'll pop a link in the podcast blurb and I've tweeted about it and put it on the Facebook group too um, plus they're asking people to write to their MPs if possible so please please help out with that if you can um, oh and I'm going to chat about the policing bill vote next week as I wasn't going to finish till like 10pm tonight and I can't be bothered uh, to keep doing this till then so uh, yeah I know you were wondering when you you were crying out where's the policing bill chat and where or is it next next week just wait oh speaking of which next week's show may be a shorter one see now this is getting worse isn't it I'm not going to mention that until next week but how much of it probably very little uh, next week's going to be a mini one because uh, I've got other work on a Monday which I can't turn down and then the following week may be a mini one as well but who knows who knows what will happen OK, on this week's show, I talked to Stephanie Wong at Act Build Change about community organising. And in the middle, uh, I talk all about, about how wise it is lifting all their restrictions on July the 19th, based seemingly on date, not data, uh, the, even though Boris said it'd be data, not data. I mean, we all knew. We all knew that would happen. Uh, anyway, uh, let me give you a clue. Uh, how wise is it? Spoiler, it's not. No, don't skip past the middle bit now. I've put effort into looking at numbers I don't understand. So come on, tumour me. <laughs> It is of regular upset to me that you can't fix the world by doing sarcastic comments about it on social media before having an argument that doesn't make sense with a talking flag and then takes up your whole day when you could have been doing something productive like eating crisps. Instead, change only happens when people act. No, theatre industry, stand down. I know you've had a tough year, but for once, this isn't about you. I mean, act in terms of doing something, making change, getting off your bum and being the change you want to see, as well as other memes that you've seen on kitchen towels in shops that look like a storage unit for items designed to appeal to no one. But weirdly coloured passive-aggressive background image memes aside, change does be best and most effective when people do being it. While it won't really work to try to, say, have any impact on the government's feeble climate change measures by tweeting at Boris Johnson to stop releasing so much CO2 from his mouth, action on a community level can actually tackle local problems and actually make things better for the people that live there with their input as to how best to achieve it. Pushing for better bus fare regulation, halting the sell-off of public property or uniting isolated people might not often make the news, but it's there that the real political change in this country is happening. And let's be honest, it should make the news, but I guess the channels would be worried it might just encourage others and then everyone will want to go. But we should want to go, and wouldn't it feel so damn good at actually channeling that anger at the state of things at something other than the TV every time a press briefing is on? So, how to start with community organising and where to begin? And no actors stand down, we don't need a rousing monologue to get us going. This week I spoke to Stephanie Wong, the founder of Act Build Change, an organisation that teaches people how to be community change makers and how to do it sustainably. They help support people to start pushing for what they need and how to win and basically do brilliant, necessary things by enabling people who need a bit of help to get going. I know recently I had Rian E. Jones on the show talking about the Preston model and community wealth building, but I thought as a brilliant follow-up, it'd be really good to talk to Stephanie about how she teaches people to get started and what the effects of community action can be. I really enjoyed chatting to her and it was yet another interview that I've had on the show where I felt a real good deal more hopeful about things afterwards. So, I hope you enjoy. Here is Stephanie. Stephanie, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. And uh, I'm going to ask, we're going to start with a really big question. I appreciate this is quite a big question to kick off with. Um, But I, a lot of us feel like the government right now are doing pretty much whatever they like uh, with impunity. And considering that's the case, how do you even begin to encourage uh, the public, just people like the listeners, people like I consider myself a public. And uh, how do you encourage people like us um, that we can enact change when it, it, it doesn't feel like it?
0: yeah that's a really that's a really big question um i think i think as a community organizer so how i look at that question is um for lots of folks that i work with of course government matters it affects their lives every single day but in the world that they're working in and the issues that they're working on um There is still so much space to be influencing change and lots of folks that I work with may not be to start with. Definitely. um, A lot of the time may not actually be politically active. And so there's that. Um, And of course, we're working in times where change can feel. Yeah, we may we may be feeling like we can't make change. Um, but I think the first thing to think about is like when we say public, like who do we mean by that public? Um, and so for lots of people working in communities, they'll be working on, for example, like th- that national politics may be, of course, affecting them, but perhaps more actually what's happening locally and in local government will be something that they will be looking at more. And um, I think that it's really important as citizens to be uh, engaging with our agency. Um, And actually lots of the things that we celebrate in our freedoms, like the freedoms that we do have, the things that aren't perfect, but um, that have really uh, shaped our lives has been as a result of people, um, the public uh, in a very broad sense of that word being activated and engaging so it's that that weight outside of Westminster that often shifts that behavior and while it may not feel like that has because it really depends on your politics as well right but and um, why that may not feel like that is having enormous influence actually everything from the weekend uh us being able to have a weekend <laughs> um the resurgence of Black Lives Matter um that that was has happened. Um all of these, all of these pivotal moments are are shifting conversations. It's just perhaps the pace of the change. Um, but also the other thing around that is around permission, I think. And I think a lot of us are seeking permission to be able to act on our interests and act on the things that we want to to influence and change. Um, and really like my job um is about creating space for people to see that they are often seeking more permission that they need to 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 make change happen and I guess I'm I'm fortunate because I spend a lot of time working around uh, working with groups that are that are implementing change but that framing of your question which is around when when so much is going on where you feel like um Nothing is possible for a lot of the folks that I work with. Um, they may not even be paying attention to that, or the, the the sense of apathy around that has caused them to switch off from that. Um, which, of course, makes, uh, of course, is a challenge on the one hand, but also it gives that scope to bring imagination to what. Well, how do you want your cities, your places, your neighborhoods to look like? Um, but it's hard.
2: Yeah, I bet. I bet it's hard. No, I, I want to ask you more about the how 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 we get to the community organising bit. But I I suppose before that is, I mean, is one of the hurdles then is is one of the hurdles in getting people to start action? Is it apathy? Is it maybe thinking too big when we should be th- sort of thinking more local? What what are the things that get in the way of somebody, you know, starting to be active? And how do you kind of get past that? Yeah
0: oh do you know what I really wish that I had like a lovely cake recipe to share about how you how you how you (laughs) do good around that but I think we'd all be baking those cakes if we knew the right answer to it I think it's a it's actually a paradox which sounds really woolly and potentially pretentious but I don't mean it to be um because yes changing in in the local is super important especially if you're working around um a lots of feelings around nothing changes and there's really strong apathy or we've we've done this kind of thing before and nothing changes embedding in the local is super important because those small wins are very very important and yet at the same time i i think that sometimes it's a lack of imagination and actually we need to think we need to think really big and often spaces to imagine is in the spaces of the privilege right it's only certain people with certain powers that get to imagine what the world should be like what our country should be like and often they don't have that much living experience of the realities of what it is like to be um yeah, they they don't have that that sense of their imagination is incredibly limited around their privilege. Um, so yes, staying being local is is really important, um, but also thinking big is at the same time also important. And there was a really lovely framing someone wrote for us, um, Diana Ayres for our for for App Build Change, and they said something really wise that I think they learned from somewhere else which is always the case and they said that you know we need to be working at we need to be meeting that the urgency of now but working with the patience of a thousand years so yes those small wins and being in the local is super important but if we only focus on that the realities of where our world is going, it, if we only stay there, we're not going to be meeting the challenges for, for what's ahead of us. And that requires big imagination. And that requires many of us to be engaging on these enormous issues, um, which Westminster plays a role, but not the only role, right? Um, and so I spend a lot of time in the local call because um, when, you, when you had sent me some of those questions to be thinking about, Um, It was really interesting because I'm so much in local places. Often I'm like, what is going on nationally? That's like really exciting as well. Um, But I do think that there are lots of exciting things that are happening, but we need to do both. And also we need to accept that um, we all have have different, um, different ways in which we can contribute to this, right? So for some of us, actually, it is making sure that that local library remains. Um, but how do we feed that into a bigger piece around why libraries matter, why learning matters, why it actually matters that, like, libraries are one of the few spaces left where, like, you don't need to purchase anything. You don't need, uh, all you need is to be part of the place and you can have access to learning. And it's like, how are we feeding that into the bigger narrative? Um, But I don't know if that answered your question, but I think it's both. And I think where your energy is is what matters because for some really local change making can be not very exciting and for others it's the most exciting thing and um the big just feels really can feel kind of luxurious and irrelevant but we also need and, and what we want to do is to try and get to get space where we can get people to be thinking about both not either or um but those wins do matter. You do need, especially if you're meeting apathy, to show that you can actually influence change.
2: No, that that did definitely ask my question. I mean, I wonder because like you said there, it's about sort of being able to contribute what you can. And 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 I think that feels really key to me as, as sort of one of my big personal hurdles to all of this is always I go, oh, I haven't got enough time. There's no time I have already with childcare and trying to get work in and trying to pay bills and trying to do everything and then pretending to have a life. You know, when do I fit in helping the community? When do I fit in doing these bits? And... I, I'm guessing that's got to be quite an important problem for a lot of people, isn't it? How they fit this into their lives when they've already got so life is quite exhausting for everyone at the moment, especially last you know last year excluded it was beforehand. So you know, is, is that a big hurdle for a lot of people to get over? Do you really have to help people kind of navigate when they can fit this in?
0: Yes, that's uh, time isn't is a very relevant challenge and tension, and it's one that. um And also the framing around what is a worthy contribution. Um, And so with uh, the ways that I go about making change, which is quite particular, which is the organising framework, you speak about time often. So it's important to recognise that how people use time is very dependent on their circumstances. And so it's important to be thinking about multiple ways in which if people have an anger at the world as it is and want to see it differently in a world that it could be how are there ways with the time that they have to create opportunities for them but also in the world as it should be we should have more time right to do the things that matter to us so it's also about how much do we how do we also engage in that um but yeah time is enormous it's an enormous challenge when things are really important to people though you will be surprised at the time that they can find and so i think that that's an important test for those that are um in a more professional wearing a more professional hat around change making and what i mean by that is not that it necessarily has to be paid but this is the thing that they're engaging with a lot of the time and sometimes we forget that lots of people that isn't that isn't where what, what they're thinking um, and, and that that's okay. Issues they might be thinking about, but how, how do we engage lots and lots of people in making change happen? Um, it's important to be thinking about, um, impor- important to be thinking about like, how are we creating those opportunities? How often are we talking about it? To be thinking about also if people aren't showing up and they're saying that they don't have time, it's also to question: is this actually an important issue? So is this really important? Because um, and you've also obviously got to think about privilege and accessibility, but there is also a thing of like sometimes, especially if it's been a top-down decision that this is the thing that we're going to be working on. But actually, when you get into community and they're like, Yeah, I, I hear that you're talking about uh, I don't know. Uh, food poverty but actually the thing that really bothers us is that it takes us an hour and a half to be able to access our local GP because the buses are so poor which then has an impact on me being able to be well which has an impact etc cetera, etc cetera. but you're so focused on yeah but this this is the thing that we're being told that this is what we need to be working on and you're not willing to shift that sometimes we use time too luxuriously as oh it's because people are time poor Um, when actually in my experience when you are working on issues that really matter to people and you are flexible with how you allow people or not how you allow how how you create space for people to show up people's time when it is important they do show up and sometimes what that also means is because we have this narrative of time is not important or, or time is so important we need to reduce our asks we need to make it as easy and um have you know a list of 20, 30, 40 ways that you can participate, because we aren't brave enough to say, actually, this is this is this is what we think. These are three ways in which we think is going to be really significant to moving on this issue. When we aren't brave enough or trusting enough that if we say that, um, and then allow within those three ways, really multiple ways to engage with those three challenges, um, we sometimes do a disservice as well because we think we've got to make it as 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 uh, easy as possible when some even when we know that that may not that may not also be very interesting to lots of people so time is super important but we mustn't we must really test the assumptions of why folks aren't showing up and test the assumptions of and that's why I love what I do and it has its own complexities because also organizing takes so much time it takes longer than most people think to to really organize around an issue, um, is that you bring people to decide how they want to spend their time and how they want to act, um, and so there's an ownership around it.
2: Yeah, I think what what you sort of uh, highlighted for me there is, I definitely will spend time on things I'm very interested in, and I will always find time for them. And it is that is very much a big problem. Is it? it you know, if if you see campaigns, you think, oh, well, that's that's not what. Uh, specifically, it sort of riles me up on what I'm particularly keen. That you, you're not going to find the time for it. Whereas if it's something you really care about and 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 you're incited to do something about it, you know you're engaged. Then you will find the time. I think that's absolutely fair. Um, also making me feel really lazy. Yeah, I just haven't been really bothered. Um, I uh, I wanted to ask. Uh, Wait, well, that's t- two things really. But um, firstly, I suppose we just as we've just been talking about time. You know this this past year has been really hard in terms of uh, people being able to see their community, really. But I, do, you, do you feel like that's also the amount of time that people have had? Uh, well, not everyone, but it's definitely opened up time that people didn't have before. Um, but also, you know, do, do you think that the past year has kind of raised awareness of need for community change and need for community organising because of things like mutual aid groups and, and elements like that, that that really sort of held up communities uh, during the pandemic?
0: Yeah. Um, So I think loads of people have answered this question much better than I'm going to be or or have had reflections on this question better than me. So it's going to be a clumsy response. But I think that, yes, uh, in a short answer, yes, I do think that the pandemic has has brought people, a lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people uh, more aware of their place and what they need. Uh, people have gotten to know their neighbours in ways that they haven't necessarily before. Um, For some people, and and I would say also that for some people there has been a a greater respect for groups that have always been working this way Um, because if they didn't have their informal connections with each other, the system as it is, they would not survive it. Um, And so I think a lot of us, or at least a lot of people that I'm speaking to, are having a greater greater understanding and respect for groups that have always been working in, a, in that mutual aid context. Um, and I think that uh, for others, it's also created some disruption and tension because for those of that can, there's been a moving to places with more space because now that they can work online, um, so that's created so for some, I think that there's been stronger bonds for others. there's a greater like respect of what's always and is all already happening. There's a sense of uh despite huge disparities in how we're experiencing this pandemic there is a there is a shared uh you know knowing of what, what an experience um even though there are huge disparities in that experience there's we've we've all experienced a pandemic and it's meant different things for different people um but there is also a moving of place so what i've experienced because also like i live in york now i i moved just before the pandemic but you know when speaking to local people in the area like there's also a feeling of lots of people buying up places that you know they're staying but they're not rooted in community but they can afford maybe a second place that they want to commute to um and in terms of mutual aid, like that's been, yeah, that has been incredible. And I've, I've been part of different groups. And I think it's important around um, the distinction of, like some mutual aid is organizing and some mutual aid is um, a providing. And, and it's not, again, what I'm not saying is one is better than the other, but there is a there is a difference. That some are thinking about how do you build power in a place? That will sustain itself beyond this moment into the future and for others it is definitely right now we need support and these are the ways in which we can give support which is different to what organizing is and i think there's been a a muddling of that which um is important to define um but it doesn't make, mean that any either or that they're just different um and uh I think that there, and for others, because I do a lot of work in Coventry and Warwickshire, and I think, um, you know, people have, there's been a real celebration of gifts in ways that hasn't been before. And what I mean, that sounds quite cryptic, but what I mean by that is people are having to rely on each other in ways that maybe they haven't had before. Um, And so it's a really celebrating of like, what people can bring who maybe have also been people that you may have said are in need that are actually the people that are like giving their gifts and their, their learning and their experience and also just things that you need in ways that you may not have been relating to before you've been online. So like in terms of like making change, it's definitely been a challenging uh, year and a half, but it's also been, um, and yeah, the, 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 the negative is around like obviously that digital divide around like that isolation. But on the other hand, and comma, and there's also been folks who I've been working with who would never have shown up had it not been being able to have their screen off and show up in places because it's an, it's an enormous thing that sometimes a lot of us take for granted is showing up to like a meeting around an issue with people that you don't know. Um, And so there's been that and there's been a i've been able like even us meeting has been through uh, social media i've had to engage online in ways that i've never done before i've been moving around i haven't been able to and i've made connections with amazing people as a result of everything being online because i wouldn't have had the time talking about time i wouldn't have been able to go to lots of those places um, but yeah, there's definitely been a, a stronger sense of what we can do together. I think that it's also important that like there is a lot to do though to to engage that 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 base on again, reimagining what you know our country could look like because there's been things that have been done with the pandemic that have we've been told have would be impossible, have been made possible. But what I'm seeing is a retreating back to ways that um, are harmful, and that's being framed as normal, but have been harmful to lots of people. Um, yeah, that was a really long answer.
2: <laughs> no, it's great. I, I mean, mean, it's I'm interesting. Si- is it I'm thinking out
0: loud for the first time about uh, some of the questions you're bringing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but it's interesting. Uh, you know, yeah, because we, this this whole new normal narrative. There's a lot of it's like we. I don't think we want to go back to the normal that it was. But a lot of people very unhappy with that, or a lot of elements of it anyway. Um, you know, very happy about being able to go to the pub or whatever, but <laughs> some of the other bits, uh, not so good. Um, but no, it's, it's fascinating. It's also so nice to know that social media can be positive, which is, I think, really hopeful for, for some of us <laughs> at certain times. And um, I, I wondered if we can, you know, if you could give us some examples, because I think community action covers such a large... Amount of community organizing covers such a, a large array of things that can be done and, and that have been done. And I wondered if you could maybe give us some examples of, of organizing that have been achieved in the past few years um, and, and maybe why they've been successful if, if they have been.
0: Yeah. So in terms of that like big bucket of like what is change making, I think that I will I will obviously speak to organizing because that's what I know but I think it's really important to always come back to this frame of like we need everybody in moving to the world to the places that it could and should be so that all of us can exist with dignity and joy and to be able to live um in ways that are you know thriving all of us have a part to play in this space of podcast there is a huge part to play in space of like policy advocacy organizing people running those mutual aid groups. We need all all of us moving in towards that direction. And sometimes I think that I find myself in spaces where there's a lot of ego about what is the right way to make change. And I don't think that that's very helpful. I think we need more conversations about what is, you know, what is the culture of change making that we want? How is it that all of us can 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 play a role in it and because we get into these places of like intellectualizing and it's important also to have those kind of conversations but to a place where like it becomes almost untouchable and that's a huge barrier to making change because people say it's I'm not that type of person who can do that Um, but I will speak to some really brilliant organizing and, and I can speak to some like really local stuff and like some bigger stuff um, over the past year couple of years it's not the past couple of years but I think um it's always feeding into each year is the the the, the living wage work and the work around wages um which has been so effective um because it's organized in community and, and it's and it's shifted a little bit from where it started but organizing um organising of work, workers is just you know is a very good example of how you go about making change uh, of recent times we had somebody who um Blaze who contributed to the Able Change Community about um writing about the work of the better buses for Manchester and what they've been doing around public transport uh, buses are very expensive <laughs> uh, around uh, the country i think when you're based in london sometimes we you can neglect it can be neglectful like we we're quite lucky in terms of transport. Um, I'm sure that there's lots of things that need to be changed around that, but broadly speaking, um, and so uh, the, the better buses for Manchester have done amazing work about um, basically moving buses into like allowing uh, allowing pr- private companies basically are running the buses. And they have been able to win significant gains around bringing it back into the powers of local authorities around uh, how much you pay, uh, taking inspiration from also work in Glasgow. There's some fantastic organising around buses in Glasgow, around um, immigration and detention in Glasgow. But they were they got inspiration from Glasgow and they were calling on Manchester like, why is it that in London you can pay £1.50 for a journey over an hour and whether I'm on a bus for 15 minutes all day the the costs are fluctuating and we can't get where we need to get to um and it was really interesting organizing because they used a barnstorm model which is where basically you get lots of people together who share like an anger like I am pissed off (laughs) about the buses I don't know what to do about the buses so if you go to your first question which is like how do you make People to engage, it's like, well, what are you angry about? I'm angry about buses. And I don't know what we can do about it, but I know that it's not fair. And once you get that sense of this isn't fair, it's like, okay, is it not fair enough that you are curious about maybe working together with others about making change happen? And they did these barnstorms and they got people engaged about, right, okay, this is how we're going to have to build our power. We're going to have to, and when I say power, I mean ability to act. They drew on learning from the folks, get uh, I think it's called Get Glasgow Moving, and um, drew on the folks doing brilliant work in Glasgow around the buses, got learning from them about what's worked, what's not worked. And then they did a power analysis of, of like, well, who's in charge of the buses? Who do we need to engage with? They engage with the mayor and they won. And through that story of winning is now there's like this bus movement transport movement happening and so they've inspired action in Yorkshire I think in Sheffield and transport is so significant because it's how we get everywhere Um, and to be able to shape how you can move about your city and to have citizens engaging in that process that's what organising does because it starts okay it's starting with buses but then what comes next um So that's like a really wonderful example. And Cass has written really extensively about it. So I'm probably giving a really bad um, um, reiteration of it. The living wage work around organizing workers in the East End is much older, but it's still alive today. And it's working in, in place, right? Because I think people get confused with organizing. They think it's about organizing activities, but organizing is about organizing people um, and organizing people so that one you win on some of the things that you want to win on but also that in the future you can defend them but that also you have organized the people trained and developed uh, their capacities for saying this isn't fair but also we can do something about it let's put our heads together to think about how we go about doing that into the future so that you can reactivate them in really important moments and um, there's been amazing work over the past couple of years with um the unions around the gig economy and uh, couriers um that's with uh, IWGB and United Voices of the World again saying you can you can you can't change um you can't change the the the, 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 and the 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 courier kind of gig economy it's it's impossible proving that actually if people are angry enough and you bring them together on or around a base that you can win changes. I guess the thing around organizing is that it takes time. We're going back to your theme of time. Is that often people are wanting to see the changes immediately, but you've got to build trust. People can lose their jobs. People are giving up their time to show up and to think through the strategy. So it takes time. You've got to meet that urgency with trust in organizing. People have to go through the process. Um, The work of Grapevine in commentary in Warwickshire, Um, disclaimer, I do do lots of work with them. I'm so excited about the work that they've been doing over the past three years, but they've actually been based in commentary for 25, which is very significant because that means you're committed to your area. Um, You know, you've got young people um, with disabilities fighting for their right to party, saying we have a right to party. Obviously, the pandemic has has. Slowed that down, but they're doing amazing work around that. Thinking about how do we engage our businesses in the area? Uh, they're doing interesting actions around hate speech in uh, on Facebook. Um, but the biggest thing is that they're building this movement. They want to take. Um, it started off as like isolation is killing is killing people. They want to move three thousand people who are isolated to lead in a movement to. To move people out of isolation, which is very hard, by the way, because a lot of organising is about who you can bring, and if you're isolated, you can't bring anyone. And it's also if you're isolated, you're isolated, so you're difficult to to find. Um, but they've done some really brilliant organising of one-to-one conversations. Uh, they do this thing called collaboration station, where it's really fun and creative, and you get to collaborate around an idea of how you want to change your city. Um, and it's it's really exciting work. And very tangible local things in that work is um so in Stoke more working around like community centers, like how, how do we how do we move move our institutions, our community institutions from places where you know all over the country is being decimated to move to a place of not only being thriving but also contributing, thriving and contributing in ways that they weren't before or struggling before. Um, and so that's that's some really local organising, changing your park. Your park isn't it's being supported. It's all right, we're going to we're going to take responsibility and also call on action from our uh, local powers, that be in local council, um, that our parks matter, our places matter. And um, so there's loads of fantastic organising going on, um, and the stuff in Glasgow is just around um, immigration and detention. Um, you know. People sometimes see these really spectacular moments of, you know, um, the example of um, it was in May. I don't know why the streets the streets gone from me, um, but you it, it went viral. You had all the folks around the van, um, and then this feeling of like that was just an immediate like spark of action. There has been years of organising around attention, years and years and years of act- activating and deter a sense of like, this is unfair and organising people around detention. Yes, there was people that showed up spontaneously, but the base and how they showed up was organised. And that is organising from years, years and years ago, organising people to say, this is this is not fair and this isn't how our city wants to act and you will listen to us. Um, and that... You know, we celebrate those moments, but sometimes we celebrate them as a spontaneous uh, uh, viral moment. There is levels of spontaneity, of course, but actually there is a lot of organising on the ground of engaging people to decide, you know, what what do we want our city, our neighbourhood, our uh, estate block to to be about? And when um, injustice comes, we can act on it because we've been acting before.
2: And we'll be back with Stephanie in a minute, but first... it's tough, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I think making sure people don't die, or as is now more likely, get ill, possibly with long-term conditions that follow, I think that's one of the most important things that I can do as a fellow human being on this here planet Earth. But then on the other hand, I really do just miss coughing in everyone's face while screaming, take my germs, before shouting freedom as I go round a shop with no mask on or any trousers. No, I don't really, and I almost certainly will wear my mask in shops for several more weeks, even if I still skip the trousers. It does seem, based on the polls, that most of the country is more cautious about this week's Covid-restriction lifting announcements. Than it might be suggested by the social media wailing of supposed freedom fighters, whose idea of oppression is occasionally having to put a small bit of cloth on their face. 71% 71% of Brits say masks should be worn on public transport after July the 19th, 66% say in shops and public spaces too, and 70% say they feel unsafe in a crowded or unventilated space when people aren't wearing masks. Which is a relief to hear, and also really weird to say that out loud when you realise if your preference for safety was being cooped up in a small place with everyone wearing masks, say, 2019, then it's likely the sort of thing you'd have had to pay for and have a safe word to get out of. Let's pretend to have any sort of balance of views about the changes coming in in a couple of weeks time. You know, like a news show might by pitting, say, an epidemiologist who spent their entire life studying these things and is very worried about it against Steve Virus, a giant Covid germ in a suit who insists actually it's all a great idea and he really can't wait to get into your sexy lungs. So first, the good things. And no, I'm not being Steve Virus. There are some good things. The good things are, firstly, that vaccines are definitely working. They are definitely properly working. Hospitalisations are lower than they would be without them, considering the current amount of infections that we have in the country, as are deaths from Covid-2. Also, all the age groups that predominantly vote Conservatives have had two jabs, so that's all that matters, right? Right? Also, uh, it's the summer, supposedly, though not really according to the actual weather. And so that means that COVID is at a disadvantage because it dies in the sunlight. No, sorry, that's vampires. Sorry, carry on. But you know, we're outdoors more where COVID doesn't transmit as effectively. Except when it's raining lots like it has been, we've all had to sit indoors because look, Wimbledon's on. And that's just how it works every year, even though every year we also say it's meant to be summer, why is it raining? And then you remember it's Wimbledon, it was Glastonbury, it's always raining. But those many... Wait, sorry, three. Okay, one wasn't really that good. Those two things are countered by the other facts just a weeny bit. There are currently at least 25,000 new cases of COVID being recorded every single day in the UK, and two-thirds of the country are still insufficiently protected against the virus, either only having one jab or just being too young to have any. A single dose of vaccine is only 33% effective in tackling symptoms of the Delta variant and you can still transmit it. And even with two doses, AstraZeneca gives you 60% complete effectiveness and Pfizer, 88%. So there's still a little bit of leeway for getting quite ill and doing the transmissions. Does that mean the vaccines don't work? Hell no, they do, but they aren't Asterix-level magic potion. That sort of supreme vaccine-level shit is impossible. The doubling time of COVID, according to Jim Bowen Tribute and Chief Scientific Officer Sir Patrick Vallance, is nine days. So that could mean 50 000 to 60,000 cases a day by next week. And that's with the current restrictions, all of which are going the week after. Plus, this is all ignoring the issues of long COVID, which, while I have to resist every urge to pronounce it COVID, it's actually a pretty horrible lasting effect that causes fatigue, respiratory issues, and in some people, organ failures and mobility problems. So just sort of pissing about names, probably a bit insensitive, isn't it? Sorry. Imperial College London have estimated long COVID to affect around 2 million adults, or one in six middle-aged adults who's had COVID and one in 13 younger adults. Research shows it's affected a lot of children and teenagers too, even if they had little to no symptoms from the original infection. And Scientists in Germany have been studying the blood cells of people with long COVID and found that the size and stiffness of their red blood cells deviated strongly from those of a person in full health, meaning that COVID actually bloody changed their cells. But you know, not in a cool might give you superpowers sort of way so that you turn green and break shit. So the concern is that more infections will cause more long COVID cases, but also potentially be a breeding ground for more variants, which could then render the vaccines less effective. And suddenly here comes lockdown four, or hey, maybe we learn to live with the virus by all being just fully part COVID as we discover that the government are in fact all giant COVID particles in their most advanced form. Yes, even though they don't often seem very advanced at all. Hopefully all those science people who fully understand all of this are somehow wrong and the impatient morons in charge are right and either the variants will become less dangerous or somehow, like the Spanish flu, it'll eventually just go away. Failing that, I'll keep all fingers crossed that this Conservative government will instead. And now, back to Stephanie. So, all those examples are really positive, which is just uh, so nice to hear. And I think one of my concerns... Um, oh, and I should just say that we, we both sort of realised it's Pollock Shields, at Camus Street, uh, that was... Which I should know. I've mentioned it on this podcast several times before. Um, but... You know, one of the things that I notice is that so little of those actions are ever covered on mainstream news. Um, constantly, whenever there is union action on mainstream news, it's negative, and it's often about how the unions are, are tampering with things. And and you know, as you said, so much this is about trust and about getting people to to, to not only trust in uh, the groups and the organisations, but also in just, you know, realising their own ability. And if if a lot of the courage is negative about this sort of thing, how much of a challenge does that pose in, in getting people to take part? How, how much of a difficulty are you finding that that's causing?
0: That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, I think recognition is super important. And I think when you're, when you are at a place where you cannot get the recognition from mainstream media... It's really important in your organising that you don't skip recognition be- between each other. So the stories that you tell, those stories of success, are really important also for drawing in no- new people. How you tell the stories of what you win, and even if it doesn't feel like a win yet, how you how you speak to those moments are really important to be bringing people in. But I think that um, there's that wider national piece of like uh, that's why you, you do you do this is why i think organizing is so important those one, to, the bedrock of organizing is something called a one-to-one conversation and i think that if you do not have the power to be uh to be able to get uh, your stories in the press yet or stories are being um shared in ways that are negative those one-to-one conversations and being in community and having conversations is really important because otherwise if all you get is your information from um a particular newspaper that is obviously going to frame your understanding and um, I don't know uh, in terms of like our education institutions how 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 well we are around being like critical you know we're encouraged actually to have the answer and to not ask too many questions and um, so those one-to-one that political um, With a small p education, Uh, I always find it funny when people say small p. And I just said it. uh, That political, like everything is is political. Um, That political education of of why the world is the way it is and and why why stories are shared in particular ways is really important. But it is a challenge. It's an enormous challenge. Um, It's also an enormous challenge of when things are report like when when things are shared around who gets recognised um because when you think about like the if we think about like the charity sector and like funding funding is so important that's another big important part of it is like when stories do get shared who gets recognized and how we recognize others is really important to be generous and open because that's also influencing funding um and that's why i think it's it's really important around well two things one creating spaces like how you're creating space. To, think, to to enable people to share, to share their stories of success in their groups and organizations. And, you know, we're living in a new power world where like, you know, you can set up from your bedroom like a whole new media stream. So there's that one part, but also we're living in the world as it is. And in the world as well, that is in the world as it is. But what I mean by that in the world as it is, national newspapers still have significant power. And so more and more, I think it is very important to be thinking about how you get stories shared in um, the mainstream, if you are wanting to engage that middle, it's often framed like the movable middle. And other people from other ways of change making say that that is less important. What we need to do is build our base so big that that becomes less relevant because we will build our base so big that we will be able to shape those stories. but. There is also in the now that you know being having somebody who's like good at comms and able to get you know great press releases out is also really important for your change making. Um, you know, I saw I saw a great um, the work of Refugees for Justice in Glasgow um, who um, are doing some fantastic fantastic work. Um, they got some fantastic coverage in the Guardian, but also in the BBC. So. It's important, like where you have that expertise around comms, that, that you really respect that expertise and and support people to get your narratives out there. Because I think it's also it's not just about um, sometimes stories not being shared as we would like them to or that people just don't want to share them. I think people on the ground are working so hard and with so little resource that, you know, being able to prioritize um, how they get those stories out there is difficult so for example we started this conversation around yourself saying you know around time it's also like how are you using your platform to be able to help people find the time and i think more um more journalists that, that there could be more thought around that and around whose stories are getting told yeah i think it's also about whose stories get told Um that's another important bit but yeah of course you want you want your stuff in you want your stuff in the news but also that's that's the nature of the beast. it's it's really it's really, really hard. and I would say when you are getting negative negative uh, pushback, um there is there is some great writing around it, but that often me if if you're getting that negative pushback, but you're in the news, you should be treating that as a bit as a comma along the ways to winning because often you will be ignored if you're not if you're if you're starting to not be ignored even if it's not in the ways that you would like it to um, one to see that actually as oh I think I think we could be onto something here because people are noticing us and then you know and then you get to a place where then everyone says that you know we were supporting this from the very beginning and of course this was the, the right thing to do um, but that space of like that negative publicity is often a place of heat And to not lose that as an opportunity, that is an opportunity to be engaging in because it means that you're under the skin of someone. Also take everything I say with a pinch of salt. (laughs) (laughs) So uh,
2: Stephanie, big question is act, build, change. Uh, You help support people uh, and you, and you help sort of get them started on community organizing. So if there are listeners who feel that they want to act, how do they get in touch? Uh, How do you sort of start with them?
0: Yeah. So if there's an issue that you are angry about and you want to take action and you're interested in, it's a problem that you can't see by yourself and it requires others. Community organizing is probably a good approach and how you would get in touch is you would just go to our website, you can uh, create a login and we give free training and you would yeah, just subscribe to the website. And then, so tonight, for example, we're doing it's all for free. There's something called, uh, it's an experiment uh, project swap. And you will be with a bunch of other people who want to change something in their community or nationally and want to project swap that idea with somebody else who wants to change something and you will support each other and we support each other so subscribe to the website you get free training Uh, you'll meet amazing people Um, and uh, we run lots of events where you can get to know each other but also get training and development and if you're interested in more, like, deeper organising support, then the same process, but just email me and we can have a conversation.
2: That sounds really exciting. That's, that event sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I was going to say, well, thank you so much for your, for your time. And um, and uh, the last question, which is what I ask everybody uh, that I interview on this podcast, which is simply, that apart from yourself, and at Build Change, um, what other campaigns, people, writers, or, or whatever would you recommend that listeners follow in terms of community organising or just for... Politics, info, you know, who, who are the people that you go to and that you trust?
0: Yeah, so um, there's an amazing school. It's called the School for Change Agents and it's uh, run by Helen Bevan and Catherine Pereira um, and they're doing some fantastic work uh, within the within the NHS around, um, yeah, activating change agency um, and what does that mean and how do we, yeah, how do we create change within, you know, the NHS, which we all treasure, but there's a lot of, of support needed. Um, I am loving the writings of Panthea Lees. Um, and I've only just started reading her writing, but I am I'm loving every moment of it and um, we I'm doing some work with Refugees for Justice and we took some inspiration from one of her blogs recently. Um, I haven't listened to it but everybody is telling me that I need to find the time um to listen to oh my very ticked down let me see it. there it is it's listen organize act by Luke uh, Bretherton and um I, I I've been to some of Luke Bretherton's talks years and years and years ago but um lots of people are telling me to to start listening to that podcast because it's apparently fantastic and um a lot of my learning where I spend most of my time is actually in our community meetups because we get organisers from not only just the UK, Ireland, all over. And they come with just, yeah, they come with really interesting challenges, but you know, the people that write for us, like very, you know, they're working very live. But, so there's great books that people can read, but also there's great things happening right now. And um, yeah, there's great work by Cara Sanquest. and um, Marissa Macon. There's just there's there's a lot out there. And that's really exciting. And a book that I would be encourage you to read is, um, and you may have already been suggested it is by Alicia Garza, The Purpose of Power. Buy it. And uh, it will teach you lots about organising in in a much better way than I've probably explained it. (laughs)
2: I really enjoyed chatting to Stephanie. And should you be one of the many people who, like me, generally feel livid about everything but have no idea what to do about it, then do check out at buildchange at buildchange.com and on Twitter and Facebook too. Stephanie's own Twitter is Steph Wong underscore underscore as well. Only two more shows left before a summer break with guests booked up a plenty, so no need to send me your burning recommendations just yet, uh, or better still, the people you'd like me to interview rather than set fire to. But if there is someone or an issue in particular you want to get me thinking about for the autumnal months, then yell type a message to at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcastgmail.com. At or, you know, you could write it on a giant flag and stand on top of it, hoping that it may garner enough attention for me to see it, but chances are higher that the wind will change in end up in France, potentially accidentally starting a war. So, as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Um, Fear not, because it will be back next week in some form or another I mean that's no reason not to fear things anyway there's tons to be terrified of but you know this podcast regularity is not one of them so save that fear for Covid or climate change fascism or werewolves and while dodging those cheeky lycanthropes don't forget mid-pelt through a dark forest uh, to let everyone know just how much you enjoy this usually werewolf free podcast I'm sorry for the extra werewolves um, join the Patreon maybe give the show a five star review on one of the pod platforms where it resides I'm sure even the growliest of wolf men will give you pause for that or pause I don't know anymore Cheers, big ears to Acast, my brother, Last Skeptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Boris Johnson announces in his press conference that if we just stop talking about COVID, it might go away, while Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance stand next to him in full hazmat suits. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Flagging Big Time. Are you worried that people can't see your flag when hanging it out of your car window or sailing your boat into a one-person war with the continent because you mixed Red Bull and apple juice again and now your brain hurts? Come to Flagging Big Time, where we have flags of all sizes from Flag Size. Definitely has opinions I'd be concerned about size. I think there may be a house under there, but we haven't seen it in three weeks size. And this flag is so big, it now needs its own flag size. Flagging Big Time, all your flagging needs for a really flagging country.